You're listening to And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to discuss our first book club pick of 2024, uh, Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City, a memoir by Jane Wong. As always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported in part by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba. So if you'd like to support this podcast, you can head on over and become a member. Uh, Patreon supporters get access to uh, Books and Boba's members-only Discord server, uh, where you can talk to us and fellow book club members in real time, as well as our monthly bonus podcast, Boba Chats, uh, where Rhea, myself, and sometimes a guest have a casual chat about what's going on in our lives, um, books and otherwise. So yeah, uh, we are at the end of January, and man, it feels like it's been a really long month. Yeah, same here. It really felt like we were already into April, and I'm like, no, first quarter has not <laughs> ended. It has barely begun. <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot's been going on. Um, but on the bright side, our, our pipeline is full. We have a lot of really cool stuff coming up this year for Books and Boba, and we're excited to you know bring you a lot more author chats and, and more programs um, for you and for our Patreon subscribers as well. Yeah, like yesterday, I like checked my inbox, and it was like, 10 emails from Marvin and they were all like Google calendar invites for future author uh, interviews. And I was like, dang, like, yeah, we have like author interviews until like March. Yeah, April. We're, we're booked up till April, which means lots of great content coming your way. Um, really excited. But at the same time, man, I think we I think we literally just assigned ourselves up for reading like 12 books over the next like three months. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm super excited to be bringing you some exciting content over the next few months. Um, Look forward to it. But uh, we're not here to talk about our plans this year. We are here to discuss our January book club pick. And as always, um, during our book club discussion, we do go into all plot details of our books. Um, Probably a little less relevant with this book being a memoir. But we will be going in depth into Jane's stories and themes. So um, if you haven't finished the book yet, now's your chance to hit pause and finish reading. Um, Or if you're one of our readers, I know you're out there, who likes to read our book club picks after listening to our discussion, um, you're free to do that as well. Um, Read however you like. And also uh, just some trigger warnings for those of you who have not read the book yet. Um, So we have gambling addiction, um, alcoholism, um, portrayals of uh, domestic violence and abusive relationships. So really go into the book just bracing yourself for, for those. And yeah, just proceed with caution if any of those are your triggers. Yeah. Um, but with that, let's get started with our book club discussion. Um, Rira, as always, please start us off with the book jacket description of Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City. In her debut memoir, Jane Wong tells a new story about Atlantic City, one that resists a single identity, a single story as she writes about making do with what you have and what you don't. What does it mean, she asks, to be both tender and angry? What is strength without vulnerability and humor? Filled with beauty found in unexpected places, Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City is a resounding love song of the Asian American working class, a portrait of how we become who we are, and a story of lyric wisdom to hold and to share. So Jane Wong is a poet, and it is 
very clear from her prose that she is a poet and a very good one. Yeah, her writing definitely has a very lyrical quality to it. Um, it's very evocative. You definitely feel a lot of her emotions as she writes about her experiences growing up in Atlantic City um, and existing in um, a lot of these very white male spaces, right? And her background as a poet definitely comes through because, you know, she weaves in a lot of really great metaphor and wordplay. And I found her story really interesting to read both because of the content and because of her style. Yeah, she has, I think, two other books that came out before this and they were uh, poetry collections. And um, some some of the poems that she's written, it's expanded upon in this collection of essays. Um, I personally want to read How to Not Be Afraid of Everything um, because there is a chapter where she talks about hypervigilance that Asian Americans with, um, you know, trauma and also like Asian American women just navigating a patriarchal world kind of feel. And um, she also like goes into her panic attacks and her anxiety and how she deals with it. So um, I would love to read her previous book and see like because that that is a topic that I am pretty interested in um but this collection of essays because it is a collection of essays I would feel like I would say they're like vignettes because there are like mini chapters within chapters and from interviews that I've read uh with Jane Wong she said that she didn't write these chronologically um and yeah, she didn't really think about writing linearly. And some of the writing in her book, she's been working on since like 2015. So um, there's just like bits and pieces that she pulled out from uh, previous writings. And then um, like, obviously, she goes into her experience into the pandemic. So there's like more recent works. So I really like the nonlinear quality of the book, which is usually rare for me as a reader. Yeah. I mean, even though the stories weren't um, don't take place during a linear timeline, they still flowed really well into each other and built off each other as we went along. Like it was a good progression of stories. And, you know, for me, it was a really great reminder that the, you know, the Asian American experience and specifically the Chinese American experience is isn't the monolith, right? Like I share a couple intersections with Jane, right? We're both Chinese-Americans, children of immigrants. But there are other intersections that I don't share with her, right? Like I'm I'm a dude. Um, I grew up on the West Coast, specifically the San Gabriel Valley within an Asian-American enclave. So growing up, I didn't have the experience of feeling ostracized because of, you know, my ethnicity. Um, there are other reasons that I was ostracized, um, mainly, you know, my my choices, my hobbies, my lifestyle. Um, but I think it's good to be reminded that even within cultures and subcultures, experiences vary widely based on where, when, and how you were raised. Yeah, um, just from like reading the premise of this book because it does go into like her father who had a gambling addiction who would go to Atlantic City and uh, at some point he like loses a lot of money and he leaves the family right so from it from from just like reading the premise you think that this is kind of going to be one of those stories where it's about overcoming trauma and um it's going to be like a sad time book. But actually, this book is quite funny. And um, I think it kind of holds like a reverse Uno card because it's like, ah, you thought that this was going to be like an immigrant struggle 
book with a lot of sad time stuff, but actually, um, you know, it's there's joy in it. I love the fact that she has like this really tight relationship with her mother and um, and also like with her brother. And it's also about how she came into her own in writing. And it's like it's more than just her abusive relationship with her father and also um disappointing relationships with like her um past partners so it it goes beyond trauma and i think she does mention it in her book uh she writes they're so hungry for immigrant trauma they lap at blood before blood can even exist but isn't love mine to hold to this shimmering dip in the heart this rattling terror wasn't it some kind of love that led my mother to cross that shore? Isn't love what siphons nourishment to the to the organs? As a Chinese-American woman, as a child of immigrants, how can I divorce my experiences from love and fetish, terror, and hypersexualized violence? Like, she does go into, like, like there is this subgenre of... <laughs> of like trauma porn in in asian american (laughs) literature i mean we read our fair share of those types of stories right like um you know for this book club we've made a conscious effort to read a diverse spread of genres but you know growing up if we were ever assigned a book by an asian american in school it was probably one of these you know intergenerational trauma porn stories about um, you know, mother and daughters and whatnot, right? Yeah. I mean, mother and daughter relationships in Asian immigrant households, I think it is like a very special type of relationship that has a lot of, uh, that, that has a lot of pain, but also a lot of love at the same time. Um, but we have read books with a lot of portrayals of intergenerational trauma and the immigrant struggle and the broken American dream. And those books are very important. However, I feel like as time has gone on and as like the Asian American literature um, collection has grown over the past few years, like we want to branch out of that stereotype of like, we're always suffering. It's like, no, (laughs) some of us, you know, have a lot of some of us actually have okay relationships with our family and some of us actually do. Like we want to read stories that are about like falling in love and, you know, defeating empires like it's so it's like very frustrating when non-Asian readers, they are actively seeking trauma porn stories or they're or like there are Asian authors who are querying and that is the only thing that literary agents are looking for. And um, Jane goes into a lot of that in her book on like there's there's like this one story where um, she's talking about how like someone asked her to read a poem about like her struggles and she was like, "Uh, no, thanks. (laughs) And then the the lady came back and was like, "Okay, but like, can you maybe send me your poem and we'll have someone else read it? And it's like wow, people are really that interchangeable for <laughs> for immigrant pain. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's because I just finished uh, reading the book recently. But um, 
I'm reminded of the um, the anecdote she had when attending Kuniman for the first time and being overwhelmed and kind of having a panic attack, right, because of the um, solidarity she was feeling for the first time. Because um, for the longest time, you know, coming up as a writer and going through grad school and everything, she's been indoctrinated into thinking into believing that there's only room for one, everyone's competing against each other. And when she finally finds herself in a room full of other Asian American writers who are nothing but supportive, she was still super tense about it, right? Yeah, she studied at the Iowa Writings Workshop, and that's a very prestigious writing workshop. If you tell anyone that you graduated from that program, they're just like, wow, you're like one of the best writers in America, pretty much. And... um I was pretty surprised to read about like the not not the red tape necessarily, but just like the amount of entitlement from the professors and how, you know, dismissive they were of uh, Jane's writing and also just like, you know, calling her calling her poetry like cheap Ikea furniture that uh doesn't come with directions. And I was like, holy crap. Like as someone who went to a write, who graduated from a writing program, albeit it was, uh, it was screenwriting. Like I've never received critique that useless and that scathing. Um, My professors actually did give feedback like that. Like they actually did write comments and the fact that she didn't get comments from her professor because they didn't find her to be a promising writer and they didn't like her work. I was like, what the hell? Like you would think that like, once you get into this program, like you would be shown at least a modicum of respect because you were good enough to get accepted into the program. Um, And just like reading about Jane's kind of abusive relationship with the white professors in this program, it was, it was really hard to read. Um, yeah, and- I mean, it, they kind of fueled her imposter syndrome. She was already feeling like she lucked into getting there and then just being bombarded with this constant reaffirmation of her, like, maybe she shouldn't be here. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I could have persevered through that. Like, it's, it seems very... And I guess that's something we see a lot throughout this memoir, right? Is she goes through a lot of shit. You know, some through her own choices, but a lot of it is due to the environments that she finds herself in, right? Like being poor and Chinese, growing up in New Jersey, being Asian in very white spaces, and how those power imbalances affect her both personally and professionally. And the silver lining in, you know, all these stories is that she she never really gives up, right? Like she's able to persevere through all that. And that's not that's not nothing, right? Um, because as we know, this world is it's built to beat us down. Yeah, and I feel like academia, it is kind of like like that that is kind of the packaged American dream for immigrant parents, right? You go into a prestigious school and you know you you make sure that your the next generation can claw themselves out of poverty. They can like move up in the world. But academia is like it is very biased and um not just towards like race but also economic status you know it's like if you're not rich if you're not part of um like if if you're working like a job while you are studying then you don't belong there 
because you're not taking your craft seriously. You're not doing it like 100% because your attention is being split. And um, Jane is constantly belittled and judged during her time in Iowa. And also it's like very sad because, you know, she's in a community where she's like one of the only Asian people there. And that is still kind of like a shock from moving from Jersey, even though, um, you know, Jersey is not like San Gabriel Valley. There's still a very sizable Asian community there. There are a lot of enclaves. And just to be uprooted and just put in this very hostile place that's constantly gaslighting you, saying like, hey, you're you're a token. Like you are taking somebody else's space because um, like they need to fill their quota. And uh, it's really heartbreaking to read because she was so excited to get into this program. <laughs> yeah, I feel like being gaslit is kind of, it's an ongoing theme, right? Like the whole world is kind of gaslighting her all the time. And, you know, reading all that she went through, you know, professionally, personally, um, romantically, it's kind of hard not to, you know, feel pity sometimes because man, it just seems like she just can't catch a break. But like we mentioned up top, this book isn't really a sad times book at all. And I think Jane does a good job kind of weaving through the tones that, you know, even though you're reading about these really, this all this really heinous stuff that's happening to her, she also invokes this feeling of just like anger and rage, right? Like she's, you know, she spends the book alternating between feeling sad for herself and feeling angry about everything. And I think the book does a really good job balancing those two modes. Yeah, a big theme in this book is rage and anger and how it can feel you, but also really exhaust you and how empathy can also be extinguished by exhaustion. There's only so many times you can give somebody a second, third, fourth chance. And um, like her essay, Object of Love, which goes into her past abusive relationships, um, you know, like there is this passage that I thought was very uh, powerful. And she wrote, I am beginning to believe that difficult means independent. Let me say that more accurately. I am worried that being a difficult woman means I love myself. I love my convictions, my community, my writing, my intelligence, my gut and all its flora. And every single time I feel like I have to lessen myself because of men, I am difficult. Let me say that again. I am scared that being difficult means I want to survive. I want to survive. And I do like how, you know, even though she is writing about like these horrible experiences with her ex-partners, it doesn't veer into trauma porn, you know, like she doesn't try to make sense of it because it's like this is just what happened and violence doesn't really have a reason abuse doesn't really have a root to um rationality and i don't know like it seemed very like straightforward and very like raw and honest to me rather than like i don't know it could have been really easy to dramatize her like past trauma in these relationships but it was like very like very much like let me tell you my story yeah i mean those that chapter especially and and whenever she talks about her past relationships were really hard to to get through sometimes because of just all the 
not only micro, but also macroaggressions that she has to go through. And there's that really interesting passage where she talks about how, you know, even though most of her exes have been white, um, the few exes that weren't white are probably the few that she stayed friends with afterwards. And, you know, really makes you think about how, you know, racial power dynamics play in interracial relationships, um, in addition to all, you know, your standard patriarchy related stuff, too. I think when you are a woman, you're kind of taught to, you know, make yourself smaller and kind of, you know, we're conditioned to put other people's need before our own and feel guilty when, you know, we deem to be selfish, I guess, selfish as in quotes. And, you know, there's this idea that, you know, you have to stay through bad situations. You have to you know, endure cruelty as like a sign of commitment, as a sign of loyalty and love. But l- love is not that. Love, Loving someone should be easy. It should be as natural as breathing. And, you know, I love that she has such a strong support network, such good friends who remind her like, hey, like you're my friend and I love you. And this does not come with like a condition. Whereas with her ex-partners, you know, they they are like very much uh, they very much like make her feel like she has to do certain things in order to earn their love. And I'm like, your love is garbage. It's not even love. And the fact that like her ex-partners had like this weird Asian fetish as well um, as someone who has been dating a white partner for over 10 years, let me just say that when uh, Dan asked me out, I like immediately went to Facebook to <laughs> look at his <laughs> to, to look at past exes just so like I just needed to check that he wasn't one of those guys. Right. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny how um, Jane mentions uh disorientation which is by elaine say chow because uh there's also like white characters who are into asian girls and there's like this fetishness Uh, and the main character says even if they don't have any asian exes there's always this fear that you're going to be the gateway into that like (laughs) fetishness and i just i was just like yeah that is that is a quite valid fear but I, I'm I'm kind of like going off on a yeah. tangent. I mean, it was frustrating as a reader to read her going through all those experiences and not just immediately piecing out. And obviously, it's different when you're in that situation. It's different when you have a different mindset about your own worth. Um, but you know, we're reading her memoir, and you know, because we're we're she's sharing all of her innermost thoughts. Like we feel like, yeah, like we're we're friends with her because we're we're in this experience together. And just reading about her experiences, especially with you know the one she calls the bad one, it's like we've all taken the role of like her friends who are just watching someone we care about uh, be stuck in an abusive relationship and just wishing hoping that she would you know snap 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 out of it somehow right yeah i think it's really easy to fall into the trap of victim blaming and also you know like saying oh she has daddy issues which is why she has a string of bad relationships but it's not it's not that though um it's very different when you are in a an abusive relationship especially with a narcissistic partner because they 
they have this tactic of making you feel like you're special and they love bomb you and they take that love away and try to like condition you into doing what they want in order to get that uh get that affection and um i think in that essay she talks about like she's like i can't tell you what made me leave like what was the last straw on the camel's back like i can't tell you how i survived that relationship but you know she did and as someone who had friends in really bad relationships in abusive relationships it is um you can you can tell them all the red flags you want but they have to be the ones who uh acknowledge those themselves they need to be able to uh value themselves and to be able to say like hey this is this is not what i deserve and that's really hard when you come from a place where you have a lot of self-loathing and you feel like you have imposter syndrome and you yeah. have to earn somebody's love. I mean, I feel like so this is where where I don't share an intersection with Jane, which is like feeling like you have to conform or change yourself to fit in. Right. Like I personally didn't have to do that because like I always grew up in majority Asian places and i didn't have a lunchbox moment she, she mentioned her lunchbox moment in one of her essays as well which is like you know the 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 experience of going bring your lunch to school and having everyone like be grossed out by it like it's what the media is trying to tell me is a quintessential asian experience that i just did not have growing up but i also know people who did go through those experiences right uh, i have a friend who grew up in indiana who were like she would get embarrassed whenever her mom would bring out asian snacks when her friends were over and it's it's a very real thing that i've seen other people grapple with and so like, i wonder how much of that also leads to you know when you're told your whole life that you're not enough that you need to fit in you need to change yourself that was that due to you right yeah um as someone who also grew up like in new jersey i don't have the same uh experience as jane because i did grow up in a korean american enclave and even when we moved out of that enclave there was still like enough asians that we weren't alone and uh this is actually like pretty interesting because my cousin asked me this recently she said as someone who lived in the East Coast and now lives in the West Coast, uh, what would you say is the difference between um, like Asian Americans? And I told her, well, there's no reason to conform here on the West Coast because there's like such a diverse group of Asians. And you can really, you know, you have that security net of just like, OK, like I don't have to prove myself. Like there are slacker Asians, there are overachieving Asians, there are Asians who have dropped out of school to help out with uh, family businesses. And then there are Asians who, you know, are making bank and are, you know, being lawyers and whatnot. And I feel like there is like this ease that you can move around in the world because you know you are so sure of your identity and you don't feel ashamed or you don't uh, feel the need to make yourself small or you don't feel invisible. It's just you you are allowed to exist. Yeah. Whereas on the East Coast, like even if you grow up in an enclave, let me tell you, like the Asians there are super intense. OK, it is like <laughs> competitiveness is like on another level. And I think 
there is like this idea of scarcity in the East Coast. Like there can only be one successful Asian in the writing community. There can only be uh, a certain number of Asians who can make it to Columbia or Harvard. So you kind of you're kind of trained to uh, see other Asians as your competition. And also like you are competing you are you, you're trying to be at the level of the legacy kids that's also your competition so it's like you're constantly trying to prove yourself that you know you are worthy of being in these prestigious institutions that you deserve that job on wall street and whatnot so there is there's like <laughs> a lot of like not self-loathing but just like i need to show the world that i yeah. And the best. And like that energy is not in the West Coast. (laughs) Yeah, you need to prove that your hard work is worth just as much as their Nepo baby bloodline. Right. Yeah. And I feel like in California, like there are so many Nepo babies that like (laughs) I I feel like people are just like so used to it. They're like, of course, like, why would we compete with the Nepo babies here? Like they're it's it's kind of like useless. So wherever you end up, you end up. Um, um, I mean, that said, even having grown up in an enclave, you eventually do have to, you know, leave and brush up against the real world. And that's when you start to realize that, you know, white supremacy does exist. Like when you enter the professional world and suddenly you are the only Asian in the room, you know, this country, like America likes to view itself as a place where anyone can make it. Um, but the truth is, and this is something that is shown time and time again in during Jane's memoir, it's like, but only if you fit into your box, the box that like we put you in. Um, and you know, that's something that she runs into time and time again during her 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 career of like pursuing writing. Um, which is why like, again, going back to her Kundaman story, that was so such like, it's at the same time funny, but also sad, right? That like she would be so emotionally assaulted like by seeing acceptance for the first time right yeah uh there's this quote where she says rage and solitude is one thing rage and community is another the latter is fertilizer is transformative and i think that is so true because uh you know like you and i have worked in like the asian american like media spaces and it's just like when something outrageous fucking happens like (laughs) when we see something on angryasianman.com and we're just like that's some racist bullshit like our community rallies you know but imagine if you are in freaking iowa like or somewhere where there is like you're the only asian person you just simmer in that rage and you i don't know you you feel like you're being gaslit. You're just like, oh, maybe you're overreacting. And it's like, oh, there's no point in feeling angry. Nothing's going to change. But when you're in a community, it's like, no, you can make a yeah. change. It's the whole, it's the argument for representation, right? It just, which is like, there are other people who feel the same way you do. You're not alone. Um, but when there's when there's no one else to like kind of bounce that off of, like you do feel very alone. You start to wonder like, am I the, am I the baddie? Right. Am I the one in the wrong? And that's just such a tough place to be. You're, you're at this place, which is where you want to be, but you don't feel welcome. Yeah. And there is a chapter where she talks about how she met Maxine Hong Kingston for the first time, uh, the author of the woman warrior, which was a previous book club pick on the show. Um, and she says that how starstruck she was 
uh, by Maxine. And she was like very shy about getting um, a picture with her. And she wanted to say all these things to Maxine, like, oh, like, thank you for paving the way. Like, thank you for being one of the only Asian writers that I like had an example um, of like, like a role model for. And even though she didn't say any of those things, like Maxine hugged her and she said, I did it for you. Like I did for the next generation. And it, it was, that was all she needed to be like, okay, I have to keep writing because, you know, there is worth, there is worth in it. Yeah. And um, like, I think that's been one of the most rewarding things about doing this podcast for sure. Like starting from 2016 (laughs) to now, we've just seen so many uh, young and upcoming Asian American writers and they have so many role models. Whereas, you know, the older writers, they really struggled and they really had to carve out a space for themselves. And um now we now we have our own table and we side eye all the all the <laughs> bullshit that happens, like the yellow face thing with uh, Michael Derrick Hudson, the guy who pretended to be a Chinese poet and made it into yeah. like, the the best American uh, like poetry collection. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Jane like, that- does include a lot of like um, real life, maybe not current events, but there's a lot of um, other works, other articles, histories, and I had kind of forgotten about that whole debacle before reading her thoughts about it in, in this novel like oh yeah that did happen didn't it yeah and the most frustrating thing about that was we couldn't even celebrate the asian american writers who did make it into the collection like the real asian american writers and and she was talking about how it was so like like it made her feel so gross that her name was so close to this yellow faced guy's name in like the in like the table of contents and how, you know, whenever she or uh, the other Asian American writers who made it into this collection would have interviews, they would always ask them about the yellow face poet and not really about their own work. And I'm like, oh, of course, they would center the yellow face poet above like the actual Asian American poets. Yeah. And she talks about how like, you know, how demeaning and how frustrating it is that, you know, the publishing industry would just mix up Asian writers for other Asian writers. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not like, oh, I didn't write that book. That was a different Asian author. It's like, oh, well, you guys all look the same. And, you know, we still have this problem on like book Twitter where people would tag the wrong author. And it's like, it's not that's not the author yeah. who wrote that book. <laughs> yeah, I think Jane definitely does a really good job um, illustrating the frustrations of being an Asian, especially Asian woman author. But in addition to learning about her, her romantic and professional, um, I guess, adventures, um, we also learn a lot about her childhood, like growing up in a working class restaurant family in Atlantic City. Um, and I thought those chapters were really compelling as well. Right. Like kind of reading her you know, her relations with her parents, you know, her father, um, like we mentioned, was addicted to gambling and walked out on the family and leaving her mother to kind of raise them on on her own. And I really liked reading about the mother. I think Jane does a really good job, um, you know, <laughs> in a lot of stories about immigrant families, it's easy to reduce the parents to like this force you have to overcome. But in her memoir, like her parents, especially her mother, is her own like fully fleshed like human character and i really like that she 
took the time to talk about her history and the reasons why she came here and what her hopes and dreams were. Yeah, and I also love how she credits her mother for being a poet. She was like, no, my mother was the first poet in our family. Like she always came up with these quote unquote ancient Chinese sayings <laughs> and she would always talk in like these these like metaphors and similes and riddles. And it's like, that's where I got my uh, love for language from. And I love how her mother transforms after her father leaves because um, her mom, like because of like cultural and patriarchal standards, she had to like stand by her husband, like like through his like problematic behaviors and through his addiction and um and you know like she was trying her best to not be quote unquote difficult but after after Jane's father left her mother is like yeah be difficult like put yourself first and don't make other people feel like uh you deserve less like when Jane goes through her um breakups like her mom is like go buy yourself flowers like you don't need you don't need any boyfriends except me mommy will be your boyfriend except for the sexy stuff we're not doing that and yeah. <laughs> like there there's like jane's humor there for you and i just love how her mom is you know she's an extrovert and she really blossoms into her own and uh even though she is like post office worker and she's like working these grueling hours in the night shift like she still has like so much life to her and um yeah like it was just like so endearing to see how close she was to her mother and how like in between sections in in the book there's like wongmom.com yeah. <laughs> where she's like getting like imaginary advice from like her mom and what if, like, what if her mom's advice was available to the world on the internet? Yeah, what if we turn her mom into like a a ChatGPT chatbot just to give like auntie um, isms to to the common person? And like with her father, I thought the first the the opening essay, "Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City," the titular um, essay, it I liked how she gives context to the readers about how gambling is not just you know it's it's not just like an asian american trait it's not like a chinese trait uh she says that um like chinese people are targeted like they actually have buses that roll into chinatown to get... i mean there's a reason why we call those chinatown buses right <laughs> yeah yeah and it's like you can't just boil it down to like oh chinese people are into luck and into gambling like no they are being targeted and they're being sold this dream that they can make it big and um they can you know be like they can be lucky and it's like they don't understand that the game is rigged and it's kind of like the same with academia you know you're kind of sold this <laughs> american dream and it's like oh it's kind of rigged and <laughs> i mean that's the deal with the american dream in general right it's like you're you're told that you can be anybody here but again the game the game is rigged like you can be anyone as long as you're a certain type of person yeah and it did like reading about her brother 
trying to reach out to their dad and like build this relationship. It was it was really hard to read because yeah, it, it's like oh my god, like you're giving someone so many chances who like don't really give that much value to you as like a person. Um, the way that her brother like recorded all these nba basketball games on vhs yeah, tapes that because was a sad he knew, story because yeah. he knew that his dad didn't have a dvd player and he wanted to have this activity that they can both enjoy and bond over but her but their dad is like oh i'm busy and you know like jane being like i was so furious in the car i want to like freaking punch my dad in the face but <laughs> What is that going to do? It's just going to make things worse. And it's like, oh, another example of us just sitting in rage and yeah, just, yeah. And that story was extra sad just because, you know, the way that her brother's portrayed in this story, like she portrays him as someone who is much kinder than she is, um, that has a soft heart. Um, although he does have a lot of rage as well. And she does reflect on maybe that has something to do with the way that she raised him to, you know, be strong against the world. But I also wonder how much of their father's like neglect is out of his own shame too, for not being able to provide as the patriarch of this family, of not being able to play his role as father to his kids, husband to his wife. Um, because, he was the one that, you know, went back to to get married because that's what you're supposed to do as like a Chinese man. But I really like that um, Jane also put into context like the the economic situation in China when her parents got married. Right. Like her mother grew up during the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward. And so it was not a great time to be in China. Like there was a famine going on. And as much as we're critical about the American dream, moving to America as a wife provided her with the opportunity for economic mobility that she couldn't find in China, especially in the eighties. Right. And at the very least her being in America provided her the opportunity to find a life of her own after Jane's father left the family. And after they had to close the restaurant, um, she was able to, you know, find a new career at the post office, which, you know, it's not the quote unquote American dream, but it's enough to make a living and, you know, government jobs, you know, their benefits are pretty nice. And also right? she finds like a family there, too. She has like a great support network at the uh, postal office. And, you know, like it goes into like how community and support networks are so important. And uh, they really help us find ourselves and find yeah. value in ourselves. I really um, like the story where we learn that both Jane and her brother Stephen were named by customers to their Chinese restaurant uh, because their mother wanted to give them American names, but didn't know any. Um, I mean, that's kind of like what happened with my uh, middle brother. He <laughs> like immigration was like, Oh, his name is too hard. Like you should probably come up with a American name for him. Uh, how about Brian? And they're like, okay, yeah, like we'll take it. Um, it was literally the first name that was pitched to them <laughs> and they just kind of latched onto it. And then with my baby brother, um, <laughs> They they had a list of American names, English names, because they're like, oh, it's the first uh, first person in our family who is being born in America, like an actual American born uh, Korean American. And the names that they picked out for him was so bad, like so freaking bad. They like one of the top three names that they had for him was Fred. 
and I'm Fred. like, Fred, and I'm like, we are not, we are not white people, okay? Like, hell's no, my baby brother is not going to be named Fred or Bob or Bill. You know, but I feel like those like classic white names I've only known to be Asians, and maybe that's just a product of where I grew up. But you know, I have friends named Harry. I do have a friend named Fred. So you know. Ugh. Oh, I mean, no offense to the, the to the Asian Freds out there, but um, <laughs> like, why? Just just why? My my brother should be very like he should be happy and relieved that I was the one who named him Eric. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. But we mentioned like you know how America, even though the game is rigged, there is a little bit of wiggle room for upward mobility. Like, yeah, sure, you might not be like rich, rich, but you might be able to make a better life for yourself. There is like a higher possibility than uh, maybe uh, if you had stayed in the motherland. And there is a guilt to that for uh, the second gen Asian Americans who, you know, have succeeded because of their parents, like, working long hours and uh, undesirable jobs. But just because you have escaped poverty does not mean that poverty leaves you. Like she talks about how like when she was a teenager, she would like she used to shoplift and she when she gets caught, she realizes that she's been shoplifting the only the sale items, only the clearance items. And she's like, oh, even as a thief, I'm a I like I'm a thrifty thief. I can't <laughs> I can't uh hide my I can't bury my um my thrifty immigrant background. And it's the I same related thing to that now. so hard though, because like I too am like conditioned to only buy things that are on sale, even though I have yeah. like adult money now. And it's the same thing with food, right? It's like you like a lot of our um, parents and grandparents, they grew up in a time when food was scarce. And it's like you have to eat everything off of your like you have to eat everything that is offered to you. But when you're like second gen and you're successful and you have like all these doors open to you, like you feel bad when you don't finish your plate. You you feel bad saying no to an opportunity. Yeah. Speaking of food, James Bummer also reminded me of the, it was like recent, sorry, like within the last five years, that incident of like, hey, I've made kanji better for the American palate. <laughs> oh, yeah. She does mention that in the book about that white lady yeah, who's like, I, re- about- I rediscovered kanji. And it's like, <laughs> rediscovered, like lady, like kanji has been eaten for like centuries in China and in like other con- other Asian countries. Yeah. like. And I thought How it was interesting you? that she calls it juk, which I know which in Chinese it's so, but juk is Korean, right? That's Korean. Yeah, juk is Korean. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it was funny because like as I was reading that passage, my mother-in-law upstairs was making um, kanji. <laughs> so like I was smelling. It was, it was a very interesting multimedia moment for me, like reading, reading that passage. I love the passages where she is talking about how much she hates the word elevate in food cuisine, like in in like cooking. And she's like, what is like what when they mean elevating Asian food, they mean that Asian food, immigrant food is cheap, dirty, not worth paying like like paying like a large sum of money for. And it can only be colonized and quote unquote elevated to a respectable level if only like a white person takes this old recipe and makes it western and it's like oh (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting conversation that I'm personally interested in as well because, like, is the same if, like, it was an Asian chef who, you know, is recreating dishes from their childhood and, you know, putting... It still like, makes dining. me feel weird. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, in LA, this is especially um, salient because we're a city with a huge, diverse um, ethnic food culture. Um, but we're also the city where if you're on the West side, where your clientele is a lot less diverse, let's say, um, it's not uncommon to see someone make a bowl of pho and charge like... $20 for it, right? And on one hand, you can say, well, that's how much people there are willing to pay for good food. But on the other hand, like, what does it say about us that, like, you can only charge this much once once your food is acknowledged by, like, white people? Yeah, and also brings into question, like, what is considered authentic Asian food, you know? Like, just because... Like, for example, Chinese-American food, orange, like, orange chicken, that's not, like... That's not a motherland food, but who's to say that that is less authentic? It was it was made by the enclave here, so yeah. it, doesn't that have the same merit as um, Chinese cuisine in the motherland? So she does bring up a lot of like good points, and I do love the righteous anger that's kind <laughs> of thrumming through her uh, essays, and I'm like, yeah. yes, this this anger, this. <laughs> Like, I feel like I'm always angry and I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or if, if like I'm also like Asian American living in like a white man's world. But I think all the above is the same anger that Jane obviously has as well. Um, One of my favorite essays is I believe it's the second full essay is the one about dentistry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was like such a cool essay because I did not know about these illegal dentistry places. In, yeah, in I've always I've always went to like I mean, I went to a Chinese dentist, but I think they were a legit dentist. Like I didn't go to like these like we definitely use insurance and not like these under the table backdoor um, payments. Um, but I think it was a really good point that she makes, which is like teeth care, tooth care. What's the dental, dental care. care? Yeah. <laughs> Dental care is like a sign of affluence, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like she talks about how like uh, her mother's village, like they would have to travel to not even a city, but like another town that's like hours away just to see a doctor. And the doctor is not even like a licensed doctor. It's someone who has like, who has like some medical knowledge, but not like a license. And it was only... Like later, later on in Chinese history, where they started to get like dental schools up and running and like medical programs up and running. And um, I always knew that like dentistry was like a sign of privilege because I know people who couldn't get like braces when they were younger. But like that was kind of like the extent of it, like in my in my mind, it's like, oh, you couldn't get your teeth fixed. But there's like another layer to it where it's like, yeah. oh, you can't even afford to go to a doctor, to a dentist for a checkup. Like they're like prying open. They're like taking out teeth from your mouth because they can't fix a cavity. Like that's that that was <laughs> something that was really eye opening to me. <laughs> yeah. And it really put into perspective some of the things that I know grew up with like my grandparents, my grandma especially um, had false teeth growing up. And I always I never really thought about it as like her not having access to dental care um, when she was a kid. But that was probably the case because, you know, like 
dental care is something that we kind of take granted here in the States because, you know, dentists are plentiful, but it can be prohibitively expensive if if you don't have insurance, right? Any medical care in America is expensive if you don't have insurance, which is why a lot of immigrant and poor families, they are so scared to go to the ER, you know? They're like, we can't afford to uh, pay like the, the copay or whatever. And it's you know, a a level of privilege that, you know, people in middle class don't really think about because it's like, of course, if you don't have insurance, you're going to pay whatever fee that they're asking you to pay. But um, a couple hundred dollars, it it means something different to to like a poor class. Yeah, I I really enjoy because in that essay, she not only talks about like this, this very real thing that occurs in in like immigrant communities, but also just really puts in perspective like what dental care means and like for some people that is the american dream right to have like great teeth that's your own and it's not even just like dentistry it's also like optometry like glass like let me just say as someone who has very bad vision and requires like corrective lenses i would not like i would be severely disabled in a world where glasses did not exist and in a lot of rural areas like they can't they don't have an opt- optometrist they don't have funds to get glasses and that's something that we don't really even think about in in like the uh, first world uh in first world countries because it's like yeah you can't see just just get glasses <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh i guess the last thing i kind of want to talk about is just my favorite part in the book was reading about um, the family coming to like one of her early shows and just like being like proud but unimpressed. And I feel like that's such a, in my mind at least, quintessential like Asian creative experience, right? To have your family come and like acknowledge that you did something good, but not really understanding what, what you're, what you actually did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's like an Asian family thing. Because I feel like there's a lot of families out there of all races who are just like, I have no idea what this creative <laughs> thing that my my kid is doing. But as long as they're happy, I guess, like, I'm proud of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do love the ending of the book, the last essay that she has. And it's the one with her mother and her eating mangoes, mm-hmm. like, on her day off. And she goes into the history of mangoes in china like how it was introduced like during like chairman mao's time and how it just like had like how there was like this cult for mangoes because like for the first time ever chinese people were able to eat it and i was like huh that's another thing like fruits being a sign of privilege which is probably why like in a lot of like asian households fruits are like considered very precious because it's a sign of prosperity. Like you actually have money and resources to eat fresh fruit. And I thought it was really sweet that like her mother would be like, sorry, I can't take any shifts today. I'm going to just eat a box of mangoes with my daughter. And it's like, (laughs) oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely ends on a hopeful note, right? Like the final line is her stating that she's not done yet. She's going to continue writing. And, you know, I'm excited for that because like we talked about this at the top of the show, but her writing is just really evocative. And um, like for me, it was just 
it was such a joy to read and I'm excited to see um, what else comes from her, like whether it's, you know, more poetry or um, something more, more narrative. Yeah. I would say this is like a very emotional book. It really does like tug at your heartstrings and really makes you reflect on your own privileges and on your own experiences and just like, all the frustrating things in the world, all the all the ceilings, all the all the blockades, um, and uh, as someone who is a writer, um, I really, you know, I really appreciated her talking about how there were days where she just could not write anything, and like how in the pandemic it was just so hard for her to um, stay to have like any motivation and you know she like she doesn't say it like outright but it was like she needed that break to really like um she just needed that break to feel at peace and i love how she found peace through cooking through gardening and it really sounded like she is a very nurturing uh professor to her students and she is really trying hard to break the cycle of really bad professors who are giving like horrible advice and are pretty much borderline abusive to their students. Like she's really trying to help her students um, like feel things and um, connect through their writing. And I was like, okay, that's so rare. And it's, this is why it's so important to have, have like BIPOC hmm. um creatives in like higher positions and in universities and academia so i was like there's hope for the next generation (laughs) it's really hard to cling to that because uh the world is terrible but there is hope (laughs) people are out there fighting the good fight we just need to you know we need we need more of them and we need them to be recognized and and nurtured um we did have a comment on our Discord by our book club member, Catherine, who wrote, um, I really enjoyed this memoir. I haven't read any of Jane's work before, but when she said her background was in poetry, I thought it makes sense. Her writing to me was very fluid and always has a hint of sadness, even when describing happy moments. Her relationship with men were devastating for me to read. Um I know there are men like this, and I hate how they are able to seek out women like Jane. She seems to have a healthier relationship with herself now, and hopefully that will translate to a love well-deserved. I love Jin Ai. Jane's mom is someone I would like to get a drink with. Their relationship was so warm and non-judgmental and loving. It was empowering for me to read about an older Asian woman, be so herself, and give no fucks. Yes, her credit spending isn't the best, but as it's said in the book, it's the American dream, right? Get everything you want, everything can be yours. Most memoirs are raw and give me subjects to think about, but this one made an impression on me. I don't know if it's the intergenerational trauma that she links to food or her imposter syndrome, the microaggressions, or all of it. But through these pages, it felt like a conversation, and I really can't understand Jane and why she wanted to write this book. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of points that uh, Catherine brought up. And I feel like this is a book that really is um i don't know like it it really makes you feel i don't know how else to describe it but it like the prose is very um sensory so it yeah. really makes you focus on like the moment and what sentences that you are reading um it's like very immediate i i like i honestly cannot describe it other other than those <laughs> like 
poor words that I just said. <laughs> yeah, like you feel the things that she feels. You feel like you feel happy for her when she's happy. You feel sad for her when she's sad. You feel angry for her when she is, you know, dealing with all the crap that she dealt with. And she deals, she, she's dealt with a lot of crap. So. Yeah, um, I mean, this book kind of reminded me of The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Ko, which is another memoir that we've read for this book club. For that book, like, EJ is also a poet, so her prose is also, like, very visceral, very, um, like, very beautiful and miracle. But that memoir made me feel things that I didn't want to feel. <laughs> like, it was way too close to, uh, like, my own feelings and my own trauma. And, of course, like, we need books like that that makes you really... Um, re-examine like the things that you went through in your life but um i don't know meet me tonight in atlantic city like it was nice to read a memoir that was emotional but also didn't freaking attack me <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure someone out there felt i'm pretty sure someone <laughs> out there had the same um you know had the same experience that i did with uh, magical yeah. language of others but yeah it was nice to have a little bit of distance from 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 the writer's experience <laughs> in a memoir. Yeah. Well, on that note, I guess that'll do it for our discussion of Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City. Um, we didn't really talk much about the Atlantic City part of it, huh? Well, that's like only in the first essay, <laughs> which is why I say it's like reverse Uno card, you know? It's like you <laughs> think that it's going to go really into like the uh, family being abandoned and... Uh, just like the crippling debt that they're left with. But it's not just that. It really goes into other aspects of Jane's life, which is what made it such an interesting read. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share about the book, uh, please let us know either on Discord or on our Goodreads forums. Um, as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the books that we've read and our discussion of it as well. So before we call an episode, um, let's find out what book we're reading for book club uh, for February. And for this month, it's my turn to pick. And since February is a shorter month, the book I've chosen this month is a novella. It's Untethered Sky by Fonda Lee, which is a fantasy story about a girl named Esther who goes on a quest um, to hunt down the manticore um, that killed her family by training with a rock, which is a giant bird uh, from Middle Eastern folklore. So it's a story about a girl, her giant bird, um, a monster, and revenge. Um, and I'm really excited to read this book. Um, Fonda Lee is the author of one of my favorite series, The Greenbone Saga, um, Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy. And if there's one thing she knows how to do really well is write great fantasy action. So I'm um, excited to get into this book with all of you. And it is only 152 pages, so quite a short book yeah so hope you all read along with us um as always if you finish the book um please let us know your thoughts on our gurus forums or our discord um as you heard we love to include the feedback from our listeners in our podcast episodes whenever possible but with that that'll do it for this episode of books and boba um, thank you so much for joining us uh, for our discussion of meet me tonight in atlantic city by jane wong and i guess happy february um thank you so much for listening we'll see you all next time bye everybody bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. 
You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.